Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Gangs, guns, drugs, and violence were part of life in the Cabrini-Green public housing development on Chicago's near north side. It was home to thousands of families, and in the early 80s, then-Mayor Jane Byrne moved in to prove a point regarding Chicago's high crime rate. She only stayed three weeks. Cabrini Green came crumbling down with the help from wrecking balls with the last high-rise unit torn down in March 2011. Now there is a mix of housing in the area. Pete Keller spent more than 25 years living in Cabrini Green, falling into gang life and eventually making his way out of it to become a community activist. He is author of Cabrini Green, the Pete Keller Chronicles, and he joins us this week to talk about his life in Cabrini Green and his take on it now. Hello, I'm Jennifer Kuiper in Fort Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest is Pete Keller. Welcome, Pete. Hey, thank you so much, Jennifer. It's such a blessing. When did you live in Cabrini-Green and for how long? I moved into Cabrini-Green. I've been in Cabrini since 1983. But my first move-in, like actual stay, is 1984. And I pretty much never turned back. I stayed in Cabrini about 27 years. Um, those, of course, minus my penitentiary bids, which was for four different occasions. So you would use, eliminate the penitentiary bids. It was about maybe close to 10 years off and on maybe three years here, three years there. And then you have to remember that I still moved. Uh, I did an eight-month uh, stint in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And then I n- did another eight stint on Orchard Street with my father, which was my senior year at Lincoln Park High School. And that was about it. So after that, I pretty much made my way right back to Cabrini. Um, that's always been a safe haven, home. So all in all, 27 years roughly, minus a few here and there. Pete, right off the bat, you just said that you did some time. So what was a typical day like, and did you fall into the gangs? Oh, yeah, big time. You know, I came up as a GD, which I was in Chicago. We know it's gang to the cycle. In Chicago, you're either under the six point or the five point, you know, coming up. If you are in the streets and, you know, you, you choose to live that life and you're, uh, you know, you're about the gang life situation and you just go ahead and you dive into it, it basically just matters where you grew up, you know, where you're from. It's crazy because now being an activist, you know, I go and tell these same kids, you know, picture like this. Those guys that you get into it with, if you had lived on their set and if you were born over there, you'd be getting into it with your friends right now. And so when they see it in that form and that rawness, it kind of seems so minuscule and it kind of wakes them up and saying, well, well, wow, you know, he's actually right. You know, it just depends on what side of the tracks you're on. What was it like when you got up in the morning and your feet hit the ground? 
Yes. You know, in, in Cabrini Green, there's always tension. Like I used to tell people, you can come outside your front door and cut the air with, you know, with, with a knife. There's The tension is so thick because each building in Cabrini Green is its own world, as I explained in the book. I mean, literally, each building. Now, there was 27 buildings plus the row houses, and these are all 16-story buildings. There's a few that are 10 stories, some seven, um, and then some are like 19, you know. So go figure. You're talking about like... At one time, the height was like almost close to 30,000 people in Cabrini. So it is a city within a city. Each building, like I said, it's its own world. You have to know who is into it with who, who's selling the main drugs, who's, you know, child's mother you can talk to, you can't talk to, what girl you can talk to, what guys you're into it with, who's in the hallway, what, which way not to go to walk for gunfire. I mean, there's a whole, like, biblical sense of knowledge that you have to learn in Cabrini Green. And so within the book, which is, you know, Cabrini Green, the Pete Keller Chronicles, you're going to see exactly how it's operated. You're going to see exactly a new lifestyle that really was just different. It was the motherland of all projects. I mean, we had people from Robert Taylor coming over there, Stateway, the Ickes, Henry Horner, the Ida B. Wells, you name it. People came to Cabrini to be a part of things, to to maneuver, whether it was just for fun, the gangs, um, you know, you name it. We had the biggest parties ever. We'd rent out the rec room, which is in the bottom of each building. They have a rec site, and we'd get the keys, and we'd actually have parties. And, man, these were the best parties ever. Like, people would come from all the way to suburbs, white kids, black kids, Hispanic. I mean, you name it, and you would never know that it was in Cabrini Green. Go figure. But it was a very violent place. At some point, Pete, did you become numb to the violence? Yeah, you know, there's there's always a point, I guess, after, you know, so many years that it becomes redundant. It becomes part of your makeup. It becomes a part of See, that's what's so, and I can't give away too much of the book, but I can tell you this. I can say that it, this was a story about not just Cabrini, because obviously it's autobiographical. This is a story about me coming up in a place that is so hardcore, yet not only getting numb to it, but becoming a, a known figure in that community, the hardcore way, of course, you know, nothing sweet about it. And then waking up, saying enough of the saying, oh, my God, well, you know, just getting tired of being tired. And there's a, a pivotal moment, and that is the awakening. That is the major call to, you know, to change every single fiber in my body to do right, to actually change the weirdness, which is almost a dichotomy because I still was living there and I still had to make it out and I still had to do what I had to do and still get along with those same people, you know, that I had to, you know, that I was in tour with or that I had to, you know, just fight for my life and, and basically in, in a personal sense as well, fighting my own attitudes, fighting my own integrity, fighting everything that made Pete Keller, you know, going all the way back, you know, to childhood, all the way to the forefront of what I was facing in 2005. So the book starts from 1984. It goes all the way up until 2006. It's all true, all facts. I have a separate page, and I'm kind of giving you away something, a clue, but once you buy the book, I tell you where you can go to get all the pictures because obviously I couldn't fill the book up with a, you know, a bunch of pictures. It would just be you know, it'd be too much. You know, It would be bigger, bigger than the Bible. One thing that my parents told me a long time ago, they said, whenever you do write the book, keep it brutally honest, whether you're embarrassed, whether something bad happened to you, whatever, you know, and so don't embellish, just keep it 100, and that's exactly what I've done. Everything in the book is true, can be backed up, I have police reports, documents, I'm in four documentaries, I mean, I'm known, you know what I'm saying, now I'm an activist, but I have pictures, everything, so, I mean, 
I'm the real deal. All I'm saying is that this will give you an inside look. Whatever you wanted to know about Cabrini, the real deal, you get it head on. When you say you did time, what were you in for? Oh, yeah, I went to the penitentiary four times. Always, always making money drugs, you know. Drugs are my backbone. I was, a, you know, big-time drug dealer, you know, at one point. No, nothing violent, of course. Um, although I've gotten caught with guns, of course, you know, you, you have to have that safety protection shield around you at all times. But uh, no, no, nothing that was, you know, detrimental to, you know, any, any outsider's health, but always stuff to survive in Cabrini, just basically getting money. You had to live. And um, I had my family, you know, all my children were born in Cabrini and, you know, we had to survive. But again, you see the pivotal point that comes out and it shocks you of what happens. You hit rock bottom at some point, the point that you knew something had to change and you started to and you were encountering those people that you had been encountering every day, whether they were in your gang, other gangs or people in the hallways. Did a lot of them buy the change? Did they question the change or was it just a mix? Yeah, it was probably a mix because you're always going to have those people. It's, it's almost like the, you know, the crab and the barrel syndrome. You're always going to have those who really don't want you to get out and who are going to say, look, man, you've been doing this too long. Come on, man. You throw you this, you know, kilo of cocaine. You can do this. Come on. You're, you're Queso G. Because now remember, once you read the book, you'll find out my street name was Queso. You know, and, uh, and of course, then later it became Esan. Of course, I, I gave these names to myself. They have no meaning, just nicknames that I gave myself. Esan is more of the activist. Uh, Queso, it was Queso G is the street guy. And that's the guy that, you know, everyone pretty much knew in Cabrini. You know, so even if I go through, uh, you know, the area now and there's still some old timers out there or somebody, here, like, hey, Queso, what's up, Queso, how you doing? So the progression was really quick at one point, but it was also a slow internal progression, meaning, I, I, you know, I'm sitting up there doing crazy stuff that I knew I probably didn't have any business doing, but at the same time, I was literal and I had balance, so I kind of knew I had to go out and get it in order to survive. And so that's the dichotomy I was facing. That was the, the internal struggle, the, you know, the mesh against the world, against myself, against, you know, society, and then Cabrini, because, you know, here I am stuck in a place that, you know, is a hellhole, but at the same time, there was some good in Cabrini. You know, people don't want to hear that part, you know, but there really was. And then I flipped the newspaper straight out the penitentiary. I get Voices of Cabrini started, and I started getting a lot of political people involved. I even had Christopher Sayes, who's a congressman, come spend the night at my house at Cabrini. I mean, are you serious? You know, who does this? So all these people never knew that I was living this double life. You know, here I am rubbing elbows with the political, you know, people and officials, and I'm downtown, the mayor's office, and going to all these big, you know, man, banquets and meetings, and yet going home still into the hellhole, selling drugs, you know, uh, you know, and living a double lifestyle that it had to be written sooner. It had to be known because this book, if I literally can make it out of Cabrini Green, anybody can make it. And that's the, the, the turning point of the story, that there is a silver lining, that you can come out from under the most muddiest, dirtiest hellhole in, in the world. Because let's face it, Cabrini is still the motherland of all projects, you know, from Cooley High to Heaven's a Playground of Hoop Dreams, you know, Candyman. I mean, people are literally knowing and watching Cabrini worldwide. Yeah, I, I've been to Germany. I've been everywhere. People, oh, Cabrini, great. Dude, it's, it's known. Chicago has a landmark. And guess what? It's gone now. So the story has to be told. So let's talk about that. When you first learned that Cabrini Green was going to be dismantled, did you buy it at first? Did you think it really could happen? Yeah, and I was one of the first people who actually knew about it because I was running Cabrini, uh, Voices of Cabrini newspaper in 95. 
straight out the penitentiary, you know, got it together, got some money together, and resurrected Voices of Cabrini newspaper because it had been out before, but had folded uh, just because of the hardships, not getting any participation from the community, lack of funding, you know, whatever it was. My boy, Mark Pratt, you know, kept it going as long as he could. You know, God bless him, and, and it was just hard. And him and Henrietta Thompson created it along with my boy Peter Beckendorf, and they did the best they could. But when it fell, and I was in the penitentiary because I was even writing an article for it from the penitentiary, and I said, you know what? This is too good. I got to try to do my best to get it. So when I did get out and I was still, you know, running with my feet, you know, not even touching the pavement yet, I got the paper resurrected and I started meeting all these people. So I started learning the plans for Cabrini a long time ago. And then I started aligning with a architectural firm, which at the time was called Landon Architects. And that's run by a friend of mine named Peter Landon. I even talk about him in the book. And it also shows the progression of all these people bid so that they could become the contractors to uphold Cabrini, keep it going. And, you know, the big thing back then was Hope Six, and, and they were going to have this funding for, you know, whoever got this, you know, this huge amount of money to be the architects to redevelop the near north side, Cabrini involved, of course. And we attacked, you know, I held all these little town hall meetings and, and meetings for these architects to come, and the only people who came, the only ones, and I put it ads in a newspaper, I got around Chicago, was Landon Architects. And so I kind of journeyed them along, and we found out, of course, that it was coming down. Now, there was a lady by the time who I, uh, named Renee Desilo, who I got into Cabrini, helped her out. She actually ended up doing a documentary. You know, I had to tell all the gangs. You know, I made it. I cleared a way for her to be able to, you know, walk around with a camera because nobody was going to walk around with a camera, videotaping stuff in Cabrini Green in 1995. Let's let's keep that clear. So I I made a way for her. But in fact, the beginning name of her project, and I don't know if you guys remember this, because it got on the it was in the New York Film Festival and whatnot, was the same name as my newspaper, Voices of Cabrini. Then later on, I guess because it got more notoriety, she changed the name to Seventy Acres. So I knew at that point that Cabrini was going to be gone, and I told everybody in the community, Hey, look. Your guy's time is running out. You know, if you are in the game, meaning selling drugs and, and doing whatever you're doing, start, you know, looking for other options. You know, start, you know, I wanted to be, you know, like the Paul Revere. I wanted to be the person who, you know, broke the light and said, look, it's coming. It's coming. Hell, it's coming. But, you know, people are so into what they're doing and, you know, time goes on. And then all of a sudden one building is gone. And then another. And then another. And then people are saying, hmm, maybe Pete is right. And yet. So many people waited for their last brick to fall before they left. And they should have had programs in Cabrini. I always told that to the different um, LAC, you know, meetings and those people in, in, um, that were holding those positions in Cabrini to help the residents learn to function outside of Cabrini. Because, you know, you had generations there. That, you know, remember, remember back in the day, you know, the projects were supposed to be a place you go in, you just get on your feet for after a couple years, maybe 24 months, and you move out. That was Daly's, Daddy's first incentive of the projects, you know, even though some of them will go way back to 1942, which is the Francis homes, which are the Royal House. Those were the first part of Cabrini. And a lot of people don't know this, but those were all Italian. In fact, Jesse White, who's Secretary of State now, comes from that area, and they used to call him Bucky. And that's how he aligned with a lot of the Italians. He started rubbing elbows, and that's how he really pretty much moved up. It's not what you know, it's who you know in the city. And so he became good friends with a lot of people who were doing some big things, and he kept going. And so my hat's off to uh, Jesse because he just kept his feet straight, kept his nose clean, and look at him now. Getting back to this question, yeah, I did tell people I knew about the demolition, and yet people wouldn't listen. 
You're listening to News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm Jennifer Kuiper, in for Craig Delamore. We're talking to Pete Keller, who has written a book on his life in Cabrini Green. Pete, when you look at Cabrini now, it looks much different. You have expensive townhomes, some public housing units. What's your take when you look at it now? It's very scary. Getting out and looking at that land, it's almost mind-boggling. You would not have known Cabrini even existed had you not been there or drove by it for those outsiders like yourself and others, you know, they, you know, went by there and drove by and saw the different, you know, how the buildings were at one point and now how they are. Because what's even more ironic about it is the street itself had changed. And let me explain why. When Cabrini was there, the building sat back so that you would have to walk in a walk, a walk-up type of setting to get to the building. So, and then there was gates around for safety as far as so cars wouldn't just, you know, have an accident and hit it or, you know, hit the children that were outside playing and stuff like that. So everything was all about the sidewalks. That whole community was a lot of open area where you could enjoy yourself and, and, and walk freely. Now, with all the subsidized housing, the mixed income, and, you know, all these new developments and stuff, it has brought the building itself out to the street. It's almost like they really don't want you to enjoy yourself. It's like, oh, you, if you want to go outside, you better go to the park. You can't just be in front or, you know, enjoy your stroller with your kid. You have to go to the park. So it's almost like they've pushed normality. They've pushed, you know, a sense of community away because now it's a building, building, building. It's like even more packed than it was when the projects were there. So it's really a different uh, look. It's, it's almost eerie because it's just all about the money, you know, as we know, because every square foot in Cabrini Green is $1,000. That's a known fact now. You know, I've redevelopment paperwork that states that. And so that's why they wanted it, because right next to the Gold Coast, right next to Lincoln Park, you know, near north, then you have the lakefront right there, Lincoln Park Zoo, so you're in prime territory. And so it's eerie to me. It's very different. Even though it's different, though, there's still violence in the area. And we had not too long ago the death of nine-year-old Janari Ricks, who was shot near the row houses. So there is still violence there and violence around the city. And I'd like to ask you about that as well. Yeah, being a, a, a citywide activist now, I deal with all that. I deal with the nitty-gritty. I get calls at 2 or 3 in the morning when I have to go help these young kids put these guns down. And uh, there's a lot of animosity in the street between the gangs. The reality is is that all these neighborhoods are lacking resources right now. They're lacking things for the children to do. They're, again, there's no school. I mean, even with the COVID, push these kids out back to the streets to literally do nothing. Um, we're looking at one street that is left of Cabrini Green, which is Cambridge. And yet and all, everyone that used to be from Cabrini goes to just reminisce and have fun and just hang out over there sometimes, meeting old friends. And I mean, it's just not violent like that. Now, you do have the children that have nothing to do. And I mean, they're basically adrenaline is to be at war with each other. Those children over there and, and they're at war with other kids and other housing projects. And again, we have to fault the city. You know, I've had many sit-downs with the city. I run an organization called ULON, which is U-L-O-N. That stands the acronym for United Legion One Nation, meaning we don't care if you're a, a Mason or a, a Vice Lord or a GD or whatever you are. Once you become ULON, you have to drop your association and you become family. And we get these kids, we go out, we remove graffiti, we feed the homeless. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that ULON does. And kids have to be active. That's just the, the bottom line. And they have to be loved. Young boys need a loving father figure. That stops probably 85%. Literally, because there's no male figures. All the male figures are out or they're locked up or they're doing time somewhere or they're dead or they're just out doing drugs. That's just how it is in the ghetto. And we need more resource and we need finance to help organizations like mine. Not just mine, but there's a lot of grassroots organizations that have stepped up to the plate. And so when you look at Janari Ricks, 
Because again, remember, this is resembling something that happened back in 92 with Dantrell Davis. There's only a two age difference. Dantrell Davis was seven. Janari Rich was nine. So here it is, these two kids, you know, outside. Janari was outside playing. He just asked his mom, could he go outside and play? And here's Dantrell Davis walking to school with his mother. So very eerie resemblance, kids minding their own business, and both caught in sniping, you know, fire of the, you know, the sniping fire of for somebody else. And so what we have to do, again, we need resources to stop people from idle time. What do you tell others, and you alluded to this just a short time ago, what do you tell others who are following in the footsteps that you chose to follow in and eventually chose to stop following in? And you mentioned that love is one of the ways to get them because they don't have a lot of father figures. You know, Pete, when you look at it, how do you distinguish that love and make that overcome the draw of the money that such a lifestyle can bring for some people? Because sometimes that's all they see. Exactly. You know, there's been a miscuous, a whole, um, I guess, a, huh, it's really weird because we've harnessed the word love in so many different terms in the ghetto. And it's weird because in the 90s, there was more of a true meaning to the love. You know, it was just a little bit off. And now in 2020, it's completely off. What now it is, is people can give the wrong incentive of love because remember in the 80s with Reaganomics, you know, when, and we know now, you know, the CIA brought in all these drugs and, and you know, filled the, uh, the ghetto, so to speak. And what happened is they broke up the family structure with the black and brown communities because now the, the male is out chasing Jason, what we call it, meaning chasing drugs, you know, chasing the crack, the heroin, you know, all the, the, the narcotics. And so what does that leave with the mother? You know, the mother can't live a uh, American, you know, regular type of life where she can be at home with the children, watch them when they come home from school, go over homework. She has to work, which leaves the child to come home alone. What does the child do? The child hits the street. Now, the child has no allowance. It doesn't know anything about that. Doesn't have those new Jordans or clothes. It really doesn't want to go to school because people are laughing at him. So now the gangbangers, set up the sense of false love. Hey, look, if you sell these drugs, you know, man, we love you, you have money. So the sense of belonging, the attention, the craving, the finance, all falls into a wrong category of love. Because now you have this alter ego type of man that's coming in saying, hey, I love you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a dad figure, your daddy's gone, so, you know, forget him. He's out doing other stuff, you know, but I love you. Now, if you sell this for me, then, you know, I'll give you this amount of money. So that's the only type of male love a lot of these young brothers have. And that's his face. And this is even in the white community now. So it really is happening. We're going to have to face it sooner or later as Americans. I mean, it just is what it is. Let's get over what, oh, they shouldn't do drugs. And, oh, they shouldn't be in the game. You know, it, it's so easy to say that. But when you don't have a father, when your mother's gone, when you're at home alone, and, you know, you just have nobody there but the streets, that's what happens. And see, that's what happened to me. And, and I even come from a different background where it was a, a father figure there and a mother. So if I did that, just imagine how, it, how the double fold it is for a kid who doesn't have that. So it's just all the more easier to be a part of, to, to feel belonging. And that's what we have to face. So that's why we need these programs. And I mean, I've even put out a proposal to Lori Lightfoot saying I can reduce the gang problem and the um and basically the violence in city of Chicago, 83% if given a chance, because I do have a proposal with Uline that's a set structure that will encompass two buildings and if it's man and mandated a year in Chicago will be a perfect model nationwide. I guarantee it. I know what I'm talking about. I'm out here in these streets, in these trenches. I know what will work. Pete, what do you think is fueling the gangs today in Chicago, especially on the west and south sides, and the very public violence that's been taking place? 
Well, see, this is the problem. When in, in my day, when the gangs were pretty much very amongst and, and around and doing gang things, there was more of a structure. There was a, a go-to guy. So let's say, for instance, you get your, your mother gets her purse snatched. What we had is a go-to guy on each block throughout the city, whereas, okay, you have a problem, within an hour, your mother will get her purse back. The money might be gone, <laughs> listen, but you have all the credit cards, you have a purse, all the personal belongings, whatever, and whoever took it will get reprimanded. Now, with the new setup, there is no structure, and that happened after Operation Snakehead. So what they did, they got all the gangs, you know, most of the heads and this and that, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not. that's not a debate, but what I'm saying is it changed. So it goes back to the uh, the saying, when the cat is away, the kittens play. And and what that means basically on the streets is, is that without the heads there, the people that were calling, at least in our day of gangs, you know, we had you had to go to school. We had certain things you could do, you couldn't do. You know, you had to get, if you weren't in school, get your GED. I mean, there was structure. There was laws. We had, you know, book programs and after school, you know, lunches. And I mean, it, it just kept going, the things we were doing. And even though they could say, oh, it's just a gang, there was still positive structure. It was. Within the end of the 90s, the 2000s, it was over. They stopped all that. They got the gangs. Now it's what's called cliques. So the west side of Chicago, the south side of Chicago are all infested with just blocks against blocks, click after click, all these different, I guess you could say, smaller gangs, smaller orders. Small, and then there's what we call renegade. They don't have any structure. Just you are. Just as you are. You know, you're part of the gang. It is, you know, I can sell whatever I want. I can, there's no laws. Hey, you want to snatch a purse? No one's going to do anything about it. You know, we're out here. Hey, shoot that guy. So what? He's going to have to come back here and shoot it. There's no remorse for, let's just say, future effect that if I, that I don't have to be held accountable for if I do it. So why not do it? And that's what changed. We were way more structured back in the day, and we kept a lot more uh, positivity going. So now, if I don't have to worry about anything, why not do whatever the hell I want? And that's what's fueling, as you asked, that's what's fueling these gangs now, because there's no conviction afterward. There's no, so that's what's happening. So back in the day, it was Cabrini Green for you. What is it that you want people to know about Cabrini Green? I want people to know that it was a live uh, city within a city, that even though there was so much bad going on, there was so much good going on as well. We were a close-knit community. I've never felt any, you know, we grew up in, in society nowadays where you, you're in a building or whatever, you barely know your neighbors. You might say, hey, how you doing, going to the car, or, you know, coming in, walking your dog or whatever, and that's it. But Cabrini, literally, if something happened on one end of Cabrini, I promise you, this was before cell phones, it would literally be known to the two-mile radius that Cabrini was just about on the other end within a half an hour. Just word of mouth, people close, people talking, people thriving, people out there. It was just, it really was a close-knit community. And again, it had its bad parts, but there were really some good parts. I mean, that you never heard about, you know, just like general school being, you know, like the second in the nation or that the fire station is there on, on uh, um, Division in Larrabee getting so many awards and, and the people that were there, all those people that, you know, went through some of these are like baccalaureate program students. And, you know, the list goes on as far as how many positive things have come out of Cabrini. And, then, you know, and of course, that's not the two to horn. That's just to say facts, you know, on both sides of the fence. You know, your pros and the cons. And I want people to know that it is a place that, you know, was the epitome of housing. It really was. I mean, everything that we went through, the story must go on. It must be told. Chicago has a legendary landmark. And that's what we're pushing for. Just the notoriety of it. Just to be known, to be remembered the right way. Maybe eventually we can get some type of, you know, small museum, something just to say, hey, look, 
Cabrini stood here, maybe a, you know, you know how you go into the parks and they have those nice little uh, plaques, those big plaques that are standing up, some type of marble thing, something just to give it props for all the years the people gave to their lives, the lost hopes of generations of people that wanted to move in and better their lives and couldn't, or lost children, or, you know, went through, you know, something so tragic, but yet continued on. I know a mother there who lost all five of her children to gun violence, all five, year after year after year after year. She lost a child, and that just uncanny. Her blood, sweat, and tears since she had something. Some, I mean, just the, the fact that it happened. And we want people to know that, hey, Chicago did have a, a place that was known, you know, for good or bad. That's all. I want people, to, I want I want Cabrini Green to live on with the memory of those, you know what I'm saying, that were there, that paved the way, and not just some movies and stuff, but the real deal. So if anyone ever wants to hire me, I will give a tour bus around Larrabee and Division. <laughs> just like you can go on, you know how you can go on the river and you get like a tour around the city in the, in the steamboat? That's what I want. I want a bus. From gang life to running a community newspaper and now author of Cabrini Green, The Pete Keller Chronicles. Pete, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been such a blessing. Hey, man, much love to you, and um, I always listen to the show, so keep up the good work. To our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website, WBBMNewsRadio.com. You can find our podcast at Radio.com. At Issue, we'll be back next week. I'm Jennifer Kuyper, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 